Kayakam Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose. Oh, good morning and welcome to Tech Talk right here on High FM. And we've got some interesting stuff going on in this show. Jumping around from big brand new TVs from Samsung, cryptocurrency falling out the tree, you name it. We got it. We're going to be talking about the Tour de France. How's that? It's not really a sport uh, show, but let me tell you something. Technology, as we saw in the World Cup and as we saw in the Tour de France, which ended this last weekend, is just taking over absolutely everything. It's hard to run a business. You can't even play a game of football unless the ball's got an embedded sensor, which tells you how fast it's going, how it's spinning, who kicked it where, all this type of stuff. But Listen, I've always, and I'm sure you've heard over the years, that I'm a real technology proponent. I believe technology can be used for good. I believe that all these amazing things that are coming out, the Internet of Things, all the stuff that connects other stuff to other stuff, is just going to bring a whole new, and in fact is, I mean, people are talking about the fourth industri- the, the coming of the fourth industrial revolution. Well, I've got news for you. We are living in the fourth industrial revolution. Every day you pick up your phone, you're part of the industrial revolution. Your phone has got more sensors than uh, the ships in the late 1990s had in many ways. You've got altimeters, you've got gyroscopes, you've got accelerometers, you've got pressure sensors, you've got microphones, you've got cameras, not just any camera. Ultra-high-resolution cameras for that, slow-motion cameras. It's just mind-boggling how much technology gets squished into a 180-gram sheet of plastic and, and, and steel or glass. Um, it's un, un, uncanny. Anyway, back to the news of the week. Being quite an interesting week in many, many ways. Bitcoin has to be mentioned. It has been a wild ride. For those of you who were crazy and invested their life-saving in Bitcoin sometime in the boom of 2017, I feel for you, it's not been a good ride. It's basically less than half of what it was at the end of 2017, where people were talking twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. And I cautioned loudly on the show that Bitcoin is amazing. The technology is so cool. The Bitcoin proponents are the modern-day evangelists. They're just trying to sell the whole idea of a free, uncontrolled, no government involved, no central bank currency that is going to change the rules and wipe out the fiat, as they call them, the old sort of controlled central bank currencies, etc., etc., etc. Well, the bottom line is that the entire capitalized base of the cryptocurrencies is less than a couple of large companies in the U.S. So no one really took cryptocurrency that seriously, other than as an amazing, interesting look at technology stuff. So in other words, the whole the whole blockchain idea, how distributed ledgers work, how it could actually function in a world without anyone controlling anything. So the ideas of Bitcoin, the ideas of cryptocurrency and the underlying technology is powerful. I believe it's going to drive a whole new generation of platforms, systems, currency conversion, you name it, over the next 10 years. And it's going to be fundamental to the way that things develop because you can do things on blockchain. You can manage things through that type of database. You can do things with cryptocurrencies that you just find cumbersome and difficult to do at scale with perhaps 
the traditional systems. But right now, if anyone says to you, do you need blockchain? The answer is no, because you can do it pretty much in any other way without using blockchain. So let's not go there. But an interesting report came out, and what it simply said that back in the, the day, the heyday of cryptocurrencies, cryptocurrencies were used in, as a form of money. In other words, you could buy and sell goods and services using cryptocurrencies. So it became quite trendy for your local coffee shop to accept Bitcoin. People were seen buying cars and trading internationally using Bitcoin, though the biggest amount of Bitcoin trades were done in the illicit sort of the dark web for drugs and whatnot. And, and unfortunately, hopefully no one here has been caught by that horrible sort of uh, worm or lockout where your computer gets completely locked and you get a message, pay me one Bitcoin or whatever, half a Bitcoin or a tenth of a Bitcoin, and we'll send you the key to unlock your computer. Hopefully no one's got caught on that. And do not accept phone calls from Microsoft because they've noticed that there's something wrong with your computer. Just do not ever, ever, ever do that. And don't click on suspicious links. Anyway, back to <laughs> that's my quick little sort of segue into security online. But Bitcoin has been used for all sorts of things, mostly trading, mostly now speculation. And the latest re- research has shown that from a peak of $411 million in September 2017, that was the amount of Bitcoin being used for buying and selling goods and services, it has now dropped down to about $60 million in May of 2018. And a company called Chain Analysis conducted this whole thing for Bloomberg News. So it's a reputable research project. And it's still a huge, huge drop. It apparently increased slightly to $69 million. And we're talking about globally. That's every single Bitcoin trade. I think uh, someone like um, MasterCard does $69 million a second. Globally, just to put it in perspective. So if you talk about Bitcoin in the whole month of June, they did 69 million. MasterCard or Visa probably do that sort of level in, um, or any bank for that matter, even on debit cards. They probably do that every second, even in a small country like South Africa. So the, the, the proportion of, of Bitcoin as a platform for payment is absolutely tiny. So the advocates suggest that one day, this Bitcoin thing is going to replace normal money. Well, I always maintain that it's just an interesting exercise for the geeks to play. And as per usual, people get involved. They want to speculate. They want to make money. So tons of guys drove up the price to $20,000 a Bitcoin. And at that level, they thought, what the hell? We are now going to sell. So off they went, flogged all their Bitcoin, dropped down to $7,000. Well, tons of people lost. In fact, a ton of people lost money. And those that were in on the scheme right at the beginning, who bought originally at even $12,000, made an absolute fortune. So truly, I don't believe Bitcoin is actually usable. I really don't think that anyone should get into it other than as an exercise in being cool and understanding how these technology works with your wallets and and all the crypto stuff that goes with it. It's just, um, as a geek, love it. As a businessman, couldn't be bothered. It's irrelevant. It really makes no difference in my life. It changes nothing. It adds complexity to a platform that is so well-oiled. The banks know what they're doing. Yes, you pay them. Yes, there's red tape. But coming with a red tape and all the all the sort of regulation is at least one little bit of security. As the people who invested in VBS Bank found out, small investors were all saved 
Most of them got their money out up to 100,000 rand. It was all done because they were dealing in um, a proper currency that's properly underpinned by governments and a regulatory system that just looks after the the, the, the necessities of money, and you can trust it. Whereas Bitcoin, you lose your Bitcoin, that is that. The money's gone, there's no one to talk to, the Bitcoin scams over the years have cost people millions, the exchanges that have crashed, what do you do? You can't go to the police. They say, well, prove it. You say, I've got this code. Oh, okay, thank you very much. What are we going to do with that? So anyway, so stay weary of Bitcoin. It's just very interesting that it seems to be that the buzz is gone. They're not, no one's using it to buy anything. Speculators are playing around to try and make a little bit of money. So have fun, but don't put your life savings into Bitcoin. Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose, 11 to 12 p.m., only on 101.9 IFM. Now, moving on to uh, an interesting, interesting fact that happened in the last, well, was announced in the last couple of days. Huawei, the company that uh, was nowhere a couple of years ago in the mobile industry, has pulled ahead of Apple to claim the number two mobile global smartphone company in the world, which is huge, huge news. They are slightly behind Samsung Electronics. Now, this was reported um for the second quarter, which ended, you know, uh, March, April, May, which ended, I think, end of June, sorry, end of June 2018. So for the quarter ending June 2018, Huawei has pulled ahead of Apple to claim the number two position. Huawei shipped 54.2 million phones in the quarter, 41% growth over the previous year, and jumped ahead of iPhone for the first time, really. That's according to IDC research. And they actually accounted for overall 16% of the market compared to 21% for South Korea Samsung and now 12% for Apple. Xiaomi, Oppo, and a whole lot of other Chinese guys uh, rounded out the top five. So three of the top five now are Chinese companies, which is really, really, really interesting. And here's what is fascinating about this. Huawei does not sell pretty much one phone in America, in the USA, one of the largest mobile phone um, territories in the world for lots of good reasons. Mr. Trump is not a big fan of Chinese telecommunications equipment, um, amongst other things. They do not sell any devices in that area. So you can imagine how big they've got to be globally to beat Apple and um, or nearly, well, approach Samsung without one of their largest markets uh, around. So the Chinese-based firms certainly have pulled way, way, way ahead. But that's not the end of the story. What is really interesting, this happened in a market where the, where the shipments actually slowed 1.8% for the quarter to a total of 342 million units. The number of sh- smartphones shipped in 2017, this was on the back of um, a fall of 0.3% for 2017. So the smartphone market is definitely cooling. Uh, there's no question that those that can afford or have a smartphone have got one. Places like Europe, America, pretty much most of the, the East and Australasia, it's penetrated. Smartphones are the de facto phone. You don't have much other phones. Africa's a whole different story. We're only sitting at around about 35% overall, maybe even a little lower depending on how you classify a smartphone. Uh, and there's a massive potential for growth in Africa. Hence, the Chinese interest in Africa. But it's really interesting. Samsung actually lost sales. Apple grew sales. And this is what's also fascinating. 
Apple again made 80% of the profits in the smartphone market. So it's maybe not all about how many you sell, but how many you make money on. Both Apple is the one company that does not make cheap phones at all. You cannot get a phone for $200 from Apple, a new one, but you can get lots of phones from Huawei and Samsung and Oppo and all the other guys and Xiaomi. In fact, Xiaomi built their name on high-end, low-priced phones. Um, So it's all well and good to be number one manufacturer with the most amount of phones shipped, but the average selling price of that phone is like $200, where the average selling price of an Apple phone is $700, and that makes all the difference. So Apple are number one in profits by a huge, huge margin. Samsung's still the number one phone on the market, but Huawei have pulled ahead and are now number two and pushing just as hard. Apparently I have it on good um advice or good information that there are a couple of killer new phones coming over the next couple of months. But as usual, the second half of the year is always a massive year. The Galaxy Note 9 launch is next week. Uh, we've got the Apple launch coming, the new Apple phones, whatever they're going to be called, early September. Uh, and then there's just a whole host of new phones that are going to pop out of the woodwork before the year ends. So never, ever has it been such a great um time to buy a smartphone, but watch out how the uh, the kings have fallen. Unfortunately, Nokia, the guys, BlackBerry, who used to run the show, own it, are pretty much nowhere, even though Nokia have come back with a really good range of phones, and uh, BlackBerry have a really interesting range of keyboard-based phones for those diehards who absolutely must have a physical keyboard. So just interesting how the whole market has changed, how things have moved around and um, it really does show uh, who's running the show at the moment. It's definitely top three, or three of the top five are Chinese, and that is amazing, whereas two, three years ago, it was definitely not the case. Now, moving back to a more local piece of news, and this will please, DSTV and MultiChoice have been in the news for all sorts of interesting reasons. We discussed their whole value proposition last week. Still getting a lot of questions. Should I cancel my DSTV? Is Netflix good enough? You know, I want to save a bit of money, etc., etc. Well, that discussion's been had. But multi-choice and DSTV are not sitting still. They are definitely looking at getting their streaming options up and running. So those of you who don't want a satellite dish, don't want to have a uh, decoder, and want to just stream whatever you want to watch whenever you watch it, that option is here for the most part through DSTV Go. You can do it um, to some extent. Not everything's available. Not all the stuff is there yet, but it's coming. But what MultiChoice have said on their DSTV platform is that all standard definition super, port cha- super sport channels are going high definition. So all of the channels, there will be only two channels. Well, at the moment, only two channels left broadcasting and standard def- definition. They will go Full HD this month, August. So Supersport 9, which is one of them, will be the home of the Italian series football. For you guys who are keen to to watch Italian series football, that's going HD on the 15th of August. And Maximo, which is a Portuguese football channel, interestingly, I didn't even know that, will actually go live on on, uh, August 8th as HD. So if you've got a new decoder, any one of its new HD decoders, um, you're going to get full HD broadcast. And I must tell you, once you've watched sport in full HD, it's really, it's the one place where maximum resolution absolutely play, pays off. Because when you're kicking a ball or hitting a ball or flying around the country, 
uh, on a bicycle, when things get fuzzy, you need to really, really kick up the technology. So good on DSTV. There's no question that they um, trying to catch up with the streaming services and their 4K streaming service, which includes sport, will be the only one. I tried to find 4K streaming services for sport for the World Cup, and it was just impossible. Apparently, BBC were doing it. Sky were doing it. Very few guys were doing it, and it, I couldn't find one that I could uh, get to. And on a 4K TV, big screen, football, sport, unbelievable. I've seen it. It's just a whole nother league. So stay tuned. Lots of technology coming from DSTV, and they're fighting back. They're certainly not taking their, their sort of... Uh, position uh, lightly and uh, good that's what competition does and on that note we're going to uh, have a quick break for our uh, sponsors and then we've got an interview that i did talking about sport talking about uh, the um, the tour de france and we've got scott gibson who's dimension data's group executive for digital business solutions and really he's focused on what we can learn out of the, the sheer amount of tech that they threw at the, because Didata does the technology for the Tour de France, a nice South African company. Bet you didn't know that. So we'll be back with a little chat with Scott Gibson straight after this. Hi FM Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose. Well, welcome to Tech Talk Cafe right here on Hi FM. And on the line using technology as we do is Scott Gibson, who is the Didata Executive for Digital Business Solutions. So I must tell you, welcome to the show, Scott. Is there such a thing as a non-digital business solution today? Well, I'm sure there are some out there. Um, but I guess, you know, we live in this new digital age, and so everybody is harnessing the various technologies that the digital age has to offer, whether it be in the way that they interact with customers, uh, the way we interact with employees, uh, the way you and I are interacting now, um, I'd imagine that th- there may still be some people that are operating in an analog fashion, still writing out invoices uh, to customers. But, you know, obviously everywhere in the world, I think it's it's changing very, very fast. No question. And Didata are very, very involved this year in the Tour de France, which, uh, you know, as we discussed earlier, not everybody's into cycling, but it's it's just a spectacle. It's a an event that very few people can ignore. It's, it takes over good chunks of Europe. And you guys are very, very deeply involved on a technical level with them. Can you give us a little bit of background and, and where Didata fit in? Stranger South African companies to mm-hmm. be dealing with a massive European event. Yeah, so Stephen, we got involved in 2015 for the first time when, when we were approached uh, around an interest to be the technology sponsor for, for Dimension Data, uh, for the ASO, apologies. And, and you know, being a global company, um, we felt that it was, it was an interesting asset for us to use or platform for us to use to showcase what we can do as a company anywhere in the world. Um, and so what we started off, when we sat down with the ASO, who are the owners of the Tour de France race, they own a heap of other sporting events like Paris-Dakar and a whole bunch of other golfing events as well and, and a lot of cycling events, they said to us that, they, that this was a sport that was being digitally disrupted in the same way that companies are being disrupted. Um, sports like the Tour de France, which is, has a 104-year-old history, the audiences of today are 
are very different to 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 and and the, and the audience requirements are very different to what they were you know many many years ago now we have heaps of other sports to watch we even have drone i saw on the other day we have drone competitions on the go now and stuff and so they felt that they needed to make the the sport more interesting um they also felt that it's a sport that's very complicated to understand um and and they wanted us to try and help them um make it more more easy to understand to try and just, you know help people understand the tactics of sport so we really started off with a very basic piece of information, and that was just tracking the cyclists and getting a data point from every cyclist every second. Um, and, and then, and then from there, it's kind of evolved every year, and to the point now where where we have a machine learning algorithm that we've put in place that starts to predict who the winners are going to be every every stage. Um, obviously, we're tracking. Uh, the actual positional data, but I mean, we've been able to overlay weather data onto that to tell the story of uh, what the kind of effort index is of every cyclist um, based on the gradient that they're on right now. The time gaps between between riders is now real time and and uh, you know 100% accurate on the television screen as you as you're watching it. So I think we, you know, I always say that I think the fan of today is a data hungry uh, fan. Um, and 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 it's also it's all about the experience. And so I think you know that's what we've done. I, we we're still on a journey with the ASO. It's a it's a we're four years in now to the contract. Next year is our fifth year, and we're actually looking to potentially extend for another another five years. And every year we try and innovate. We try and add something new to the solution. Um, uh, this year we've been playing around with with um, with more analytics, trying to get more predictive. Uh, we've been beating a test to see whether or not we can predict whether some riders are going to attack the way they move through the peloton, whether a group or a team is, is positioning itself to sit on the front and attack. And we've been doing some beta testing with that this year, which we may launch next year. So it's quite a cool project for us. It's a nice way for us to try out some new innovations as well. Well, I'm a little blown away. I mean, I never even thought about half the things that you mentioned, but Come to think of it, the whole involvement in a sport or any sport is is unbelievable in terms of what the technology can bring. I mean, the World Cup has transformed. <laughs> the little bit of the of the Tour de France I've watched, the amount of data and analytics and and discussion points have have exponentially yeah. grown from the past, mainly because of the information that you guys are generating. But imagine trying to predict who's going to attack next. I'd love to know what what types of data are used to figure out, are you watching their cars if they're tightening up and they're shooting away? Who knows? But it's it's amazing what you guys are actually up to with, with regard to that. And I think all this information being collected, all the people running around and all the computers and everything that you're using to do this, how does that sort of translate into a more business environment? I mean, businesses perhaps are not as dynamic as the Tour de France, but certainly you never know what's happening day to day in, in the average sort of business. Yeah, I think we, you know, as I said earlier, we live in this data intense world or this, you know, where there's so much data available to all of us now and, and with the ability to now store all of this data in the cloud where you're not limited to your own on-premise uh, um, storage facilities. It no gets, more it running out and buying hard drives. Exactly. You don't have to do that anymore. You know, the likes of Amazon and Azure and all these guys that are 
and Google Cloud that are providing us with the opportunity to store data and process data outside of our own our own firewalls as well in our own environment. It means that now that companies have the opportunity to sort of uh, just think about their business differently, start to the insights that they can potentially gain from how customers are going to behave, how inventory or merchandising is very different to the way it used to be in the past. Can we actually specifically know that on a Friday at 3 p.m. when the temperature is over 25 degrees, I sell more Magnum ice creams? Um, you know, we should be starting to, to factor those into the way that we manage our inventory, the way that we respond to customers. And, 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 and also, you know, large, I think healthcare has a massive uh, use of some of the technology that we are rolling out as well. You know, we, we're monitoring uh, on, in our team, so with team dimension data, which is very yeah. a different asset, right, you know, to, to what we sponsor, to the Tour de France sponsorship. We're monitoring health and the, the mobile, uh, mo- we're using mobile devices, we're monitoring the health of our riders every day. And so think about how a doctor doesn't necessarily have to have every patient come into the waiting room and sit and wait. They can, they could be on a, on an application that is connected to the doctor and the doctor's getting daily information from the, from the patient and then being alerted to the fact that, hang on, maybe this guy's, you know, his heart rate's a little bit high. His blood pressure looks like he's struggling a little bit or he's suffering from headaches. I need to call him and, him in and have, a, have an assessment. And then there's no waiting room problems. Um, you know, you're dealing with patients that actually really are sick rather than people that just maybe want to come and have a chat in the, in the waiting room. So there's, there's, a, there's a massive application of these technologies in, in, in a whole heap of different industries. And how specifically are Didata um, turning this into an actual solution? I mean, it's one thing to talk about all these wonderful sensors and all these platforms that are allowing you to store the data. But I'm a business. I sell a particular service or a product. And uh, let's say I've got 20 branches across the country. I need to know where to put my stock. How does the analytics and everything that you guys are involved in assist in that regard? What are the sort of platforms that you use to, to make this real and actually implementable by the average business? Well, we have, I mean, we, we've got probably two to three hundred people around the world that work just in our analytics teams, and, and we're not alone, right? I'm not suggesting we're the only company in yeah, South Africa or in the world that does that. But, but I think that the corporates of today, and we've got some examples, a great example is the South African National Blood Service, where we recently ran an analytics um, program for them to understand how they could drive up uh, blood donation, you know, understanding what were the trends, what days of the week did people like to come in and donate. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of, we, we're, doing, we're applying that in all of our clients. We, we're doing it in retail, we're doing it in healthcare, we're doing it in manufacturing. Um, and there are a lot of options of other companies like us out there doing that. And I think that you know, if I was if I was sitting in a corporate now as a CFO, which I was a few years ago, I would be trying to understand how I could get more predictive in nature with the data that is that is available to me. You know, I remember you know in, in the days all we used to do in our financial positions was look at the history and understand where we had gone wrong, and then try to interpret how to improve that going forward. I think now you can be a lot more predictive in nature. You can build a lot of those predictabilities into your financial systems. You can have your system automatically generate 
uh, inventory orders when you when it it can kind of predict when you're going to be short, so that you never have this out of stock situation going forward. Because if you're out of stock, you lose sales. So no, I, I think it, if you can't, that's the old analog adage: if you don't have it, you can't sell it. Exactly. So I think I think everybody out there today should be thinking about how they can bring predictive analytics into their everyday into their everyday business, and it's not that difficult. It honestly isn't that difficult. If you think about we're just using a very basic piece of data, which is the position of every cyclist every second. And I imagine you're in automotive and you're tracking all the vehicles out there or you're in logistics. And, and I know there's a lot of people doing this already, but everybody should be thinking about how they can use predictive analytics in their business, in my opinion. That makes perfect sense. But, I mean, obviously all the all the learning and all the trial and error that you're going through trying to predict a whole bunch of riders with all the variables such as weather, such as wind, such as crowd, such as traffic, such as all the other riders on the road. That sort of learning must translate into some form of, of analytics or data management platform that, that you can use in a business. I mean, businesses are pretty much moving 35,000 chess pieces around the board and trying to figure out where they're yeah. going to be next. Yeah, so we, look, we process a lot of that data in the cloud. We use various platforms like Azure, we use we use an IBM Watson platform. So there's no I don't think there's one um, there's one standard platform that everybody should use. We have we have experts that write in R3 and you know all these weird codes that uh, I'm not that familiar with. But um, you know there's a lot of platforms out there. The cloud gives you the ability to process data uh, at speeds and in volumes that that uh, you know surpass what we've perhaps been used to in the past. Um, we have, I, I don't know the number, but we, we have billions of data points. I think another important point, though, to remember is that with this massive layer, all these layers of data, you need to put in a good um, uh, cyber security, um, uh, cyber security controls as well, right? And we've really focused on, on that this year as well. You can imagine cycling data with its history is an interesting uh, uh yes, all the data. scandals and whatnot that have been yeah. that have happened in the past. Yeah, so hackers are hackers are really interested in that and what we've seen we've seen that hackers work have a working life, uh, a working day. They take a lunch break, uh, you see them start uh, from specific regions at eight AM in the morning if they're from, from the east. They have a lunch break and then they start again in the in the afternoons. It's big business now. So I think a lot of a lot of our customers today have to absolutely think about how they're going to secure secure this data uh, as well. And what we've been trying to do this year is we've been beta testing some predictive some predictive security. So we're monitoring the dark web. We're understanding, getting a feel for who's talking to each other around this kind of data, and then trying to block those uh, access Before they points. Even get to you. Before they even happen. So we'll hopefully release some of that information after this year's tour as well. We'll re- release some stats on what we found um, uh, around that. Um, yeah, where we have sort of benefited is that there isn't really a financial, massive financial gain to be made from accessing this data. And I think that's really where a lot of these hackers these days target target data. But there is still an interest and we certainly have seen a n- number of hacking attempts. So that's, uh, I guess, something as well for people to consider when you move into this data. As I said earlier, uh, unfortunately, our time is starting to run out quite quickly. But I just want to wrap this up 
with a, a simple sort of observation. Where are the the largest South African corporates and business in South Africa in this space? Are they starting to change their business models to use all these new predictive uh, platforms? And is data becoming a bigger part in how we interact in business in South Africa? Or is there still a path to go? I mean, you guys are at the forefront of this. Yeah, I think there is still a path to go. I mean, we recently did, an, did a survey of of what we call digital transformation and understanding uh, the, the adoption of new digital technologies, and I would include analytics and predictive analytics in that. I think people, everybody is saying that they're on that path, they're on the journey. Um, they've certainly started to look probably at the customer uh, section of, of this or, or doing analytics around customer first, which I think is the right place to start. Uh, I do think that inventory and inventory management is probably the next place, but I, I don't think South Africa is behind. I think that uh, a lot of South African corporates are very forward in their thinking if I look at some of our customers around the world. What's, what generally seems to hold us back a little bit in South Africa is our uh, you know, the fact that we don't have massive access to the Azures and the AWSs of the world yet, but I know Azure are going to be in, uh, launching a local version of their platform in South Africa uh, in yeah, quarter four, very quarter four. So I think then, you know, once these platforms start to become mainstream in South Africa, I think you'll start to see more and more of our clients uh, adopting analytics and, you, and the use of these platforms to drive the, the mechanics and the, and the actual work in the cloud on these platforms. That's really fascinating. So we're actually moving into a completely new era in how business is done and how it interacts with its customers. So it should, in many ways, start giving us a lot more predictability and perhaps even better service going forward. Yeah, I think we're in the post-digital era now, to be honest. I think we're moving into what a lot of people are calling the cognitive era, where the machines are going to start to, to, to process a lot of the mundane transactions for us, and then the human element is, is largely around how do I now interpret this data slightly differently and make some of the business process and business outcomes decisions uh, that, oh, that I need to make. Exactly. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm afraid we actually have to end it here. But uh, let's go in touch and let's see what comes out of it. I'd love to see some of the data that comes out after the Tour de France. And yeah. good luck. Thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Stephen. It's a pleasure. Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose, 11 to 12 p.m., only on 101.9 IFM. Well, that, for me, was an insanely fascinating talk about how the technology that's involved in a bicycle ride. I know <laughs> anyone who calls the Tour de France a bicycle race is missing the point entirely. I mean, it's a premier cycling event in the calendar every year. The, the drama, the people, the technology, the history. It's just insane. And for Die Data, which is a South African company, to manage all the technology, all the drivers, all the bikes, everything to do with it is just an incredible thing. And I mean, the amount of tech, the amount of stuff they track, the amount of data they process, there's just sheer advancement in how far this whole thing has gone. And as I was saying, all sport today has become a technological tour de force, never mind tour de France. Now, before we go into my next little 
bit of the show. I've got an urgent notification from Pick and Pay Hyper Nord. It's for our kosher uh, listeners. They were not satisfied with a recent audit of one of our kosher meat suppliers and have stopped taking their product on a precautionary basis. We apologize for the inconvenience. However, our butcheries and meat counters are not affected and we have sourced alternative kosher supply. We will be koshering our meat in our butchery in Norwood and kosher meat will be in full supply from today. That's Thursday. So well done, pick and pay. Thanks for letting us know. Now, just to wrap up the whole technology and sport, as the whole doping thing has become a huge problem, as the technology of detecting doping has become has advanced to the point where I wouldn't say it's impossible. I mean, there's always somebody who'll figure out something. But essentially, performance cannot come through unnatural or sort of uh, chemical means. And what all sportsmen are doing is they're focusing on the technology of knowledge, data, how to perform better by using technology to measure what you're doing. And that's exactly what Data were doing for the Tour de France. They knew everybody's vital statistics, heart rates. They knew exactly where everybody was down to a couple of meters between riders. They could see exactly where everyone was and all the stuff was being tracked, fed into their various platforms, fed back to the teams, fed to the news producers, all real time by the split second. And it just changes the way that everyone performs. Everyone does their stuff. So, Expect to see more and more of this as we go forward. You know, they were talking about big data and cloud and IoT and, and all of this stuff is, is just words, just hype. But truly, all of these things are now part and parcel of absolutely every activity from sport to recreation to commerce, you name it. So it's really fundamentally changing so many, so many different things. Now, moving on from that to a, a, a really interesting launch this week. And that was our friends at Samsung um, have launched their brand new range of QLED TVs. Now, QLED, not to be confused with OLED, is a Samsung innovation. It's available in a couple of other TVs out there. But two years ago, they introduced the QLED. In fact, a year ago, they introduced. Yes, it was. <laughs> Time flies so quickly. They introduced their QLED range of TVs. And they offered one huge advantage over pretty much any other LCD type panel available. Now, LCD is what most um, televisions are. The only other common sort of technology out there is what is called OLED. It's only available from LG, which also happened to be a Korean company. And there are two, and the main difference between the two is, is LED are transmissive devices. In other words, light is shown through a panel. The light is generated separate from where the picture exists. And you see, obviously, what you see with the liquid crystal panel in front doing all the colors and everything. OLED, on the other hand, each dot on the screen, each single pixel or dot on the screen is its own emitter of light. So you can control the light down to a pixel, which makes a huge difference. Now, QLED, what they did is they used something called quantum dot technology to improve the transmission of light from the rear, the rear light source to improve the colors, to improve the sheer amount of light that could be transmitted. And in combination with the LED light, that's what the the QLED stands for, the light source is LED lights, which can be excellent, very even, excellent color, makes a big difference. They really did take LCD technology a huge step forward. The biggest challenge that any 
QLED type product or any LED type product has is that the LCD panel itself cannot switch off completely. So there's always a teeny little bit of light bleeding through and you get a slightly gray, slightly washed out. And in the very, very best LED TVs, um, it's, it's not that noticeable. You also get blooming. So at the end of the show, when you've got a pitch black screen and you get white writing, you find there's a halo around the lighting. It sort of blurs out and blooms and it can be a little disturbing. Unfortunately, once you've seen it, it's very, very, very difficult to unsee it. And OLED, on the other hand, because you can control the light down to the actual pixel, next, if you've got a, nothing next to a white pixel, you've got nothing. It's black and white. It's clean. It's crisp. But the downside of OLED is that the light output is about half of what's possible through something like a QLED LED backlit system. Well, the new range of 4K smart TVs are out. They're available in the stores right now. Last year's series were excellent, unbelievably bright, really sharp, beautifully made. Um, I did find on the Q7 and Q8 a little bit of blooming, and we got dancers, YMCA in the studio. Love to know what's going on here. It's obviously party time, but we'll discuss that later. Oh, it's gone, it's gone, it's gone. Party time has moved. Um, the, there was a little bit of light bleed, a little bit of blooming, but the colors, the sharpness, the sheer power and, and depth, that's the quantum dot technology, was probably state of the art. Well, Samsung have gone back to the drawing board, their 2018 range of QLED, starting with a Q9. Two things have happened. One, they've dropped the price. The Q9 last year was in the 100,000 Rand range. Well, that TV is going to sell at round about a 65-inch Q9. It's going to sell for around about 55,000 Rand. Now, that's not pocket change, but it is a huge, unbelievably well-built TV. And what they've done is they've done something which I believe they should have done in the first place, but they've now done it. The backlighting is no longer edge-lit. In other words, they don't put the light source along the edge of the TV and then use sort of all clever technical tricks to fire it through the front. They've now got a new system where the light sources are distributed, apparently somewhere in the region of 500 of them, across the back of the TV. And what that allows them to do is to control the light much, much, much more precisely. So that exact picture, like I said, where you've got this big black screen, and I just hit the mic, but don't worry about that. You've got a big black screen, and you've got a white writing. They can now switch off the light across the whole screen. So from what I've seen, this TV, the Q9F and the Q8 with this technology are in many ways, they're not quite as good as, as OLED, I must say. OLED is pitch black. There's, the absence of light is much better than, than uh, any form of hiding light. Um, but I do believe that if you're in the market for a top-end TV and you have a very bright environment where uh, OLED may be a little washed out and a little bit flat, then the Q9F from Samsung may be your absolutely perfect TV. It has brightness up to 2,000 nits. It has HDR10, which is HDR+. plus. It's even better than normal HDR. <clears throat> the color saturation and the sharpness is, is, a, is something to behold. So where many of us, <clears throat> including myself, thought that perhaps LED TVs had reached their pinnacle, OLED was the future. Well, Samsung have just unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your perspective, proved us wrong. Their new Q8 and Q9 TVs are absolutely staggeringly good. 
I cannot begin to understand. I haven't spent a lot of time in a normal environment, but in showrooms, shows, and at the launch, the picture quality is spectacular. The price is now very competitive with OLED, um, and the ability to go ultra bright in really bright light sometimes works. You know, if you've got a big lounge, you want to watch sport, things like that. Uh, it's it's an astounding TV. They've got sizes up to um, 75 inch, which is a stupid 130 grand, uh, and they've got all the way down to 55 inch for 32 grand on the 8 series. They've also got the 7, which is a lot more reasonable, 24 to 60 grand, that's for 75 inch, and the 6, which is 21 to 50 grand. So they cover the whole range. The 6 and the 7 are great. They're not. Um, I don't believe they're. They're the, the finest of LCDs, but for their price compared to their competition, the QLED, the, the QLED saturation, color, and brightness is something amazing to be behold. They're also beautifully built. So if you're in the market, well, the game is on. Competition's out there. Got to decide for an ultra-bright QLED TV or a ultra-sharp, a slightly dimmer, very accurate OLED TV. So great. Love competition. Love what it does to the market. And I think Samsung are onto something pretty special here. There's a lot more features. They now, I cannot even begin to go into it, but you can mount it miles away. It's got an optical cable, no more power cable, no more million cables to connect it. It's just a very slick, well thought out product with an amazing picture. So what more do you want? And on that note, we're going to have another quick break for our um, sponsors and we'll be back with another little Samsung innovation and an app that you if you're a Samsung phone owner, you absolutely need to get. Hi FM Tech Talk with Stephen Ambrose. Stephen Ambrose. Well, hi there and welcome back. And back to some fancy footwear from Frequency Footwear in Melrose Arch. Right now, apart from the selfie thing, uh, they're having a massive sale. So if you want to experience craftsmanship, they only import really amazing shoes from all over the world. Um, you'd be happy to know to know that Frequency Footwear has just launched their winter sale. It's been ongoing for about a week now, so hopefully there's stuff left. But you can get 50% off all winter shoes, boots, and booties. Um, and Frequency Shoes imports from Spain, Italy, France, Greece, and Portugal and are well-known for their unique style and their amazing shoes. So it's time to claim your discount, so get over to Frequency Shoes. They're in the Galeria uh, Melrose Arch. And while you're there, while you're checking out the shoes, take a selfie and maybe you could get a 3,000 Rand voucher. So all you have to do is take that selfie in front of the, sh- in front of the store and send it to info at highfm.com. But it must be here by 3, 4 o'clock this afternoon. So you haven't got much time left. Anyway, moving on to another Samsung. It's a bit of a Samsung weekend. In fact, next week they're launching the Galaxy Note 9 for you. Stylus fiends, those of you who enjoy writing on your phone. Note 9 has always been a tour de force of technology, or the Note series has always been a tour de force of the latest mobile technology. And large screens, beautiful build, amazing cameras. So I have high hopes that the the new Note 9, which comes out on the 9th of, well, it's being announced, and when it'll be in stores, probably that Friday, but um, next Friday, so it's soon. Uh, will be launched uh, on the 9th. So I'm going to be there for the unveil, and I'll bring you all the news, if you're keen, next week. But Samsung have announced something else, which is a long time coming to South Africa, and it's a very interesting solution, which has not come. No one else has done it, except, interestingly, uh, FNB. FNB have done it through their app. 
But we are, Samsung have just announced that Samsung Pay <clears throat> will be generally available in South Africa this month. And what that means, if you've got a Samsung S6, S7, S8, S9, and I think the A series, one or two of the A series with built-in NFC chips, but as long as you've got those models, it's all good. Um, you can download an app, go to the App Store, and download the Samsung Pay app. Okay, here's the App Store. <laughs> and my phone is listening to me. I tell you, these technology things never sleep. Go to the Play Store, download the app, uh, install it on your phone, and it'll t- you can apply to be an early uh, adopter or an early tester of the system. They You apply online through the app. They immediately uh, authenticate you. They link it to your phone number, and then you can go in and register. You can then link any credit, well, not any credit card. Right now, it's the ABSA credit cards. Um, so if it's an FNB credit card and a couple of others, as long as they're linked to ABSA, you can use it. And they're offering, for the first time you use it, a 30 rand voucher at Mug and Bean. And if you use it 10 times before the end of August, um, you can win a Galaxy S9. And I've been told to wrap up, but I have to tell you why Samsung Pay is so amazing. One, you use your your normal credit card, and it exists on your phone. But here's what's smart. It can be used at any credit card machine that exists anywhere in the country. So you don't have to take your card with you. You simply take your phone, you swipe up, it recognizes your irises or checks your fingerprint or you put in your PIN number, you tap it to the credit card machine, and you pay. It's as simple as that. So slick, easy, and clever, and it makes you feel so futuristic. You use your phone with your credit card to pay. And on that note, um, I'm afraid I have to leave you, and we'll be back next week with even more technology news, gadgets, gizmos, and all the latest from tech. This is Stephen Ambrose. For, I've gone blank for <laughs> Tech Talk right here on Chai FM. You see, I'm distracted with all these pretty ladies who walked into the studio. Anyway, I was stripping. oh, I was well, there was there was dancing outside. <laughs> so who knows what's going to tell you? We're really upping the ante here at uh, Chai FM. Till next week, this is Stephen Ambrose for Tech Talk.